0: I think we're live. The hour has come. Good to see all of you. I'm sure you're enjoying all the wonderful things that are going on in the world. Such good news every day, you know, you can hardly stand it. And uh, it's obvious that the brightest and the most intelligent capable people are running things. So, life is what the Lord has planned for us at this point. Um, Let's just go ahead and open our Bibles, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to put a passage in front of you that's not on your notes for you to keep in mind. And I will say in advance that all we're going to be able to do in the time that we have today is hit a few high points of Scripture Uh, I don't think there's any earth-shaking new things that you've never heard before. You'll be familiar with the passages, but I think it's always good for us to go back and be reminded of things maybe that we sometimes forget or get distracted from, and uh, we'll look at what God has for us as we go through the day. We've got three sessions. My normal conferences in the States have eight. So you can imagine how kind of crunched I feel, but uh, very happy to be here and very thankful to be able to share the word with you and join together around it. So let's just ask God's blessing on our day, our time together. Our gracious heavenly father, as we gather ourselves together on this day, we recognize that we are privileged To be your people. We are blessed to have your word. We know that we are enlightened and enabled because of your spirit who dwells within us. We know that there is nothing that life can demand of us that you have not provided everything necessary for us to be able to face. Not just to face, not just to endure, but to come through triumphantly. Father, I thank you for each and every one who's made it a point to gather together with us today. I know it takes time away from family and duties and responsibilities. There's a certain commitment and sacrifice to setting an entire day aside. And I just pray that each and every one will be richly blessed because they've made this a priority. Our prayer is that the Spirit of God will guide and direct through this day. You'll open your word to us and feed us from the bread of life. We pray above all that the Lord Jesus Christ will be set before us in all his wonder and all his power, all his glory, and that he will completely absorb our hearts and our minds and that he will direct our lives as we move forward from this day. So Father, open your word and let it come alive to us. Cleanse and purify us, sanctify the time that we spend together, and let it all be to your ultimate praise, honor, and glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. What I'd like to do in the day that we have together is to set before you the case for the local church. It's something that really shouldn't have to be done, but unfortunately in the time that we live in, it is something that needs to be done. And I want to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 because Paul, in the middle of writing to Timothy shortly before his own execution, reminds him to keep something always before the eyes of his soul. And that's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. He says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. You know, if you and I always keep that in mind and realize that that is the ultimate issue of life, Christ crucified, buried, and resurrection, and resurrected again. Then he says, and this is the part where we have to make certain applications, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer. I don't know if you're aware of it. Most of you probably are. You are considered evildoers today because you believe this. Persecution is coming. It's coming down the track like a freight train. If the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't return soon, and I pray for it every day, we are going to face persecution like we've never seen before. And we need to understand that one of the things that makes persecution the most difficult is that when you're persecuted, it's not that the news says so-and-so is in prison for their faith. So-and-so is in prison because they believe the Bible. It's something completely different. So-and-so is an evil extremist. This person is an evildoer. This person is an enemy of mankind. This is the way that Paul was presented to the world in which he lived. And so he said that he suffers such things as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, But the word of God is not chained. And then he says, therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. And I'm just going to kind of throw that out before us and ask that through the day and as we go forward in the days ahead, keep these things in mind remember that Christ has won the victory. The victory is ours. We will one day share it. But in the meantime, we may have to endure persecution. The case for the local church needs to be set against the condition of the world in which we live. Now, I actually had a very long list that I was going to lay out before you of just headlines taken from international situations from the internet and when you read through them you realize that we're living in a mental institution. Uh, It's the inmates have taken control. Uh, Our world has lost any sense of balance. Uh, Common sense is non-existent. Uh, We are and I've spent a lot of time praying over this, which caused me to set that paper aside for the simple reason that it's probably all stuff that you already know. We know that our world is in a terrible, terrible condition. We recognize that we are sinking into a darkness that five years ago would have been difficult for us to understand. Uh, Today you are commanded, ordered, at the threat of arrest, not to speak the truth. To speak the truth is to become an enemy of the state. To speak what is obvious, to speak even common sense, is now considered around the world illegal. And here's the thing that's alarming. It's the Western countries of the world, the countries that Let's go back to World War II. We're fighting for freedom, for the liberation of the oppressed of the world. These are the countries who have now committed themselves beyond all reason to go back and now impose on the very things that millions and millions of men and women died for to set us free from. It's a very troubling thought. However, we recognize that we are in the last days. And we recognize that the last days are part of God's plan. We also realize that if we're living here, He has a plan and a purpose for our life. The real question when we come to the fact that the church today is in too many cases failing her mission, the ultimate question comes down to what part am I playing? Am I contributing to the demise of the church, or am I actively engaged in holding the line that God established for us so long ago? In your notes at the top of the page, you have 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul says, I write to you that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. What most people miss is that the second you, Paul writes to you, meaning Timothy, so that you may know how you, meaning all of us, ought to conduct ourselves in the house of God. And I would prefer that the word house be translated household. It's not talking about a institution. It's not talking about a building. uh, It's talking about a family, the household of God. What is the visible, active expression of the household of God? It's the local church. And how should we conduct ourselves? Well, the idea of conducting uh, is a continual refining, continual purifying, continual, if you will, repentance of realizing there's more that I can do. There's more that I can accomplish in playing my part. Paul wanted Timothy to be the example, but the standards apply to the body of Christ. And then we look at Hebrews 10.25, where the author, again, I believe this to be Paul. uh, I've taught through Hebrews just recently, and uh, I went through what I'm sure many of you have gone through, and I think many Bible teachers have gone through, wrestling with the issue of the authorship of the book of Hebrews, and I finally came across an argument that to me was absolutely convincing that the author was the Apostle Paul and that the reason he left his name off was because he was obviously persona non grata among the Hebrew believers, and so he left his name off. And here is the argument. The argument is that in Second t- uh, Peter chapter 3, Peter speaks to those Jewish believers who had been scattered throughout Asia Minor. Asia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and so on and so forth. And he said, our beloved brother Paul has also written to you. In other words, these scattered Jewish believers. And he refers to the letter that Paul wrote to them as scripture. If the letter that Paul wrote to those people is not the book of Hebrews, then we're missing part of scripture. We're missing a book of the Bible, and I don't believe that that's the case. So I take the letter that 2 Peter refers to, to be the book of Hebrews. But at any rate, here is the statement, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. I don't want to bear down on this too much, but when you use the indefinite some, it has a slight... Connotation of, I don't want to be too strong here, not scorn, not contempt, but rebuke. Not in the manner of those, not in the manner of them. Maybe that kind of conveys the idea to us in our culture. Um, You know, the Bible has a very interesting way of removing the names of people that don't live up to their obligations. When the Bible talks about being struck from the book of life, in some cases, it's referring to the fact that your name, if you were living, say, in the days of Ruth and Boaz, you would be the older brother of Boaz and you would refuse to take on your responsibilities uh, regarding Ruth. And therefore, your name was not recorded in the story. When Boaz stands in the gate and says to him, ho friend, come here, uh, it's translated friend in some translations, but actually what he's saying is uh, Mr. So-and-so. And there's a little bit of rebuke because the guy did not fulfill his responsibility. So not in the manner of those folks. But exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. One another, by the way, is uh, one of the 59 one another commands in the New Testament. Now, I have the list of the 59 here, and I will say that some of them are repetition. So probably they're around somewhere between 45 and maybe 55 actual uh, different commands to one another each one of them lays on us the responsibility to be actively participating in a group of believers. Not necessarily within a building called a church, but functioning as the body. Not forsaking yourselves and the gathering of yourselves together. So much the more. So I ask this question. Does it look like the day's approaching? In the day the apostle Paul wrote this, the day that was approaching was 70 AD. The coming of that time where Israel would be broken off and the church would take her place. I think that's the day that Hebrews 10.25 is referring to at that point. For you and I, it's a different day. We're looking for the day when the church is cut off. And it's very interesting because as many times as I've studied the passages in Romans chapter uh, 10 and 11 particularly uh, chapter 11 where it talks about the breaking off of the branches I never noticed until just recently that two different words are used. The, the word that's used for the breaking off of Israel is a word that refers to the breaking and the twisting of a branch until it comes loose. The word that's used for the church is a straight chop. What a beautiful picture of the difference of what happened in 70 AD and what's about to happen at the rapture. I'm not gonna go through the entire introduction, but church is a team sport. Now, I know a lot of you are Aussie rules lovers, footy lovers, and just imagine if you had the capability athletically to stand at the goalposts of the enemy and kick a goal from that place. If you could stand at the goalposts of the opposite team and you could kick a goal, from that place. Are, you have any players that can do that? I don't think so. Even if you could, you'd never score a point unless you're on a team. You could be that good. You would never, ever score a point unless you're on the team. If Think about basketball. You know, we've got guys that can shoot from mid-court. What if you could shoot from the opposite basket and always make it? You're still not gonna play unless you're on the team. I would suggest that the church is suffering an awful lot today because some of its most talented members, some of its most highly educated members have forsaken. their assembling together and therefore they're robbing the rest of the body of their active participation in what's going on. Even in the SAS, and I just recently read this from the SAS survival handbook, they quickly identify those who cannot work as a team and they expel them. You might be the best guy, the most highly trained, the most skilled in the world. But if you can't function as a team, you're not what they're looking for. Cody rubbed shoulders with a lot of those kind of guys. Well, he was one of those kind of guys in Afghanistan. You have to be a team player. Teams have coaches, rules, and a playing field. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, you can't be crowned unless you play according to the rules. Here's my concern. My concern is not only that any of us individually rob the church of what we have to offer, but any of us rob ourselves of being crowned because we didn't play according to the rules. I'm making a case for the local church. No member of the body can function disconnected from the other members of the body. No finger, no hand. We'll look at this later in Ephesians chapter four. We have to be part of the team and teamwork something that's built over time. We could learn a lot from a wolf pack. I have uh, what did I do with my, I don't, I don't know, I may try to just pull this up quickly for you. You know where my computer went now. Oh, it's back there being... Okay, sorry. So I have a beautiful picture on my computer of a wolf pack. You know, we all know about the alpha male, right? Every guy in his own mind is the alpha male. That's the way he pictures himself. The interesting thing is that there's a picture of a wolf pack moving through the frozen wastes up in Canada. And wildlife biologists followed this, this group and studied this group, and they took a picture of this group on the move. I'm just going to try to create the picture in your mind. So we'll say they're moving this way. So you've got three that are out in front. The three that are out in front are, any ideas? The old, the sick, and the weak. Why? They set the pace for everyone else. They don't get left behind. The pack travels at the pace of the old, the sick, and the weak. Behind the three that are out in front, and you can really see even looking at the picture that they're old and and sick and weak. And then come five alpha males. And what is their job? Their job is to protect the old, the sick, and the weak, and the rest of the pack. So they're the guard at the front of the pack. Behind them, you have the mothers, the young, whatever, they're in the middle of the pack. And then toward the end of the pack as they're moving, picturing them moving this way, you have five more warriors. And then quite a ways behind them, you have the leader. The leaders in the rear. Why? His job is to take care of everyone. We can learn a lot from a wolf pack. That picture to me is just so graphic of so many lessons. But at any rate we'll move on. The church needs to function in three particular areas and as I thought about this I thought of so many things I'd like to have covered and obviously we could say the church has five, eight, ten roles, whatever. I just picked out three that I thought were critical for the time in which we're living. Number one, the church is called to be a witness to the world. That's the goal of the team, to be a witness to the world. Secondly, the church is called to be a warrior society. Or if you look at the church as a single individual, a warrior a witness and a warrior, and then third, the church is called on to be a watchman. Whether we realize it or not, and it's so easy for us oftentimes to overlook this, we're here to play a role for the nation of Israel. We're here to guard the treasures that were committed to them. They forsook their faith, they rejected their Messiah, and therefore they lost temporarily the treasures that had been deposited in their hands. Who then becomes the guardian of the treasures of Israel? That's our job. And again, I want to emphasize, it can only be done as a team. So let's look at the church as a force multiplier, a missionary church, the church as a witness. And again, a lot of these passages are so familiar to you, I don't need to spend a lot of time going into them. Uh, in Acts 1.8, you remember you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You should be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And if you just think of the church as that wolf pack, you can actually lay it out over this idea of starting in Jerusalem and going to the uttermost parts of the world, and every single person has a part to play. I remember being in a church in Zambia, and the pastor uh, that was there, Stuart, many of you remember Stuart, Uh, got up and challenged the people because they had a lot of old people in their church. And he said, our church has a mission to the world. He said, you young ones, you don't have property, you don't have prosperity, you don't have a lot of ties, you're the ones that need to go. You older people, you can't go. Well, then he went to, I think, the Next group was the group that had farms and land and so on and so forth. He said, your job is to send the young men. And then he went to the older group and he said, you can neither go nor do you have the resources to send. You're the ones that need to pray. Now imagine a group that was working together that way with a focus on reaching out to the world however far. to to whatever extent God allows us to reach, we're going to try to push back the envelope, if you will, of the darkness and the unbelief and spread the gospel as far as we can because we may only go a short way and reach a few people. Hopefully, when we leave here, we're going to be going up to Papua New Guinea. Uh, None of us have been in there for three years now, as you can imagine. Um, And it's... It's been good. It's a good thing in this case, and I'm sure the Lord's working this in many, many ways. It's a good thing that none of us could go for three years. You know why? We found out whether our work was done well or not. Because in our absence, our former students stepped in and kept the school running. And they have been training, and they're now getting ready for a graduation of students that we haven't even touched. And that's the ultimate goal. That's the ultimate ideal. Go in, plant a church, teach the church to be self-sustaining, self-replicating, self-governing, and then go. And it probably wouldn't have happened because we had been trying to push some of these guys to step into positions and they didn't trust themselves. They didn't feel like they were adequately trained or equipped or whatever and until there was no one else. And when there was no one else to do it, they stepped in and they've done a great job. So this is the idea of the church. So if we only went there, it's it's just a hop, you know, when you look at the world as in, in its full scope from Australia to Papua New Guinea, that's that's like Jerusalem to Samaria. But what if you touch someone there who's then going to carry it further? And further and further. My friend Fassel, who's a pastor from Pakistan, is going to be joining us up there and he's very excited to go because he did his DNA search and found out that his ancestry came out of Papua New Guinea. How in the world could someone go from Papua New Guinea to Pakistan? I have no idea. be interesting to see how they receive him. You're all familiar, of course, with with Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Uh, I'm not going to turn there. What we call the Great Commission is too often the great omission. We are to be witnesses carrying the truth by doing three things, going, baptizing, and teaching. Going and baptizing and teaching fulfill the command. Most people think the command in that passage is go. It's not. It's a participle. There are three participles that fulfill the command. The command is make disciples. How do we make disciples? Someone has to go. And by going, they're going to be bringing people to Christ. And as a result, baptizing. Baptizing was a simple way in one word in the early church for saying, this person has come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believes in... (laughs) Wow. That was not me, I promise. (laughs) Believes in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and is now a member of the body of Christ. So you could get by saying all of that by simply saying, baptized. He's baptized. Go, baptize, and then what? Teach. Doctrinal instruction, sound scripture, book by book, verse by verse, instruct the people in the word that we've been given. How is that going to be accomplished without a team? The church is suffering today because of many, many reasons, but I will tell you one of them that is inexcusable. Some of her best instructed people have forsaken her. Some of her best instructed people have forsaken her. And they've forsaken her, and I understand the arguments. Believe me, I'm sympathetic with all of these. We can't find a church that's really teaching the word. I understand that. We've had the same struggle. You know what? We're involved in a local church and have been since we left here. Why? Because we're commanded to. It doesn't say that we are to not forsake the church except that they sing too long. They sing for an hour, their songs are crap. You know, we get tired of all the baloney. Hey, I understand it all. Like I said, I'm sympathetic. They sing for an hour. They have a light show and, and like a concert type thing. And then the pastor speaks for 15 minutes. I get it. Look for another group and keep looking and keep looking. But find the best that you can. Because my friends, if we disobey this command, we have not just robbed the church. We have robbed ourselves. We have not fulfilled the purpose for which remember when paul said i suffer all things for the elect that little word elect or as peter likes to put it in first and second peter calling always has one thing in view always well i should say two things number one it has jesus christ in view because he is the elect but for us elect for what a purpose a mission something that god has for us to do and the wonderful thing about spiritual gifts in the local church is that god has gifted each individual in such a way that that spiritual gift cannot function to its fullest extent outside the local church just can't we can't fulfill our mission so the great commission is a challenge to us i hope maybe later if we're able i'm able to pull up a video for you I think it'll uh, grab your heart uh, because it reminds us we have a mission and that mission is not fulfilled. And that mission is to go to the end of the earth. And if I can't go, then I need to send. And if I can't send, then I need to pray. But I need to somehow know that I am daily involved in that mission that our Lord suffered and died for and left to us. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, Just to hit on a couple of high points. In Ephesians chapter 4, we see the church as a body in motion. He begins Ephesians chapter 4. You'll remember the three postures of the book of Ephesians. You begin with the first three chapters, seated with Christ in heavenly places. Chapter 4 begins with walk worthy of your calling. Remember, I just pointed out calling implies purpose mission, objective. And so we're seeking to walk worthy and then we get to chapter 6 and it stands. So it's uh, interesting because it's kind of the uh, opposite that correlates with Psalm chapter 1 where we have the guy who does not walk, does not stand, does not sit. Here we have sitting and walking and standing to fulfill our purpose. But in Ephesians chapter 4, Beginning in verse 11, and he himself, and I want to emphasize this because Paul emphasizes it when he says he himself. This is very emphatic. He himself. In other words, what I'm about to tell you is not coming from me. This is he himself. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ who ascended. What does it mean that he ascended? Verse 10, he who ascended is also or he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens So that purpose clause, he might fill all things. Whose job is it to see that that happens? Well, ultimately it belongs to God. But he's invited us to play a part. And the part that he's invited us to play is to help spread the word that he might fill all things. So he goes directly from that to he himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Each one of us should be asking ourselves a question. Number one, am I equipped? If we can answer that question, then the next question should be, am I engaged? Am I equipped for the work of the ministry? Am I engaged in the work of the ministry? Am I playing the part as the cog, if you will, in the wheel or the part of the body, the member of the body that I'm supposed to be? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The edifying of the body. We can't edify the body if we're not actively engaged in the body. That's the ultimate goal. Notice that we have three goals set before us. Number one, equipping the saints. Number two, the work of the ministry. And number three, the edifying of the body of Christ until we all come to the unity of the faith. Good luck with that one happening in this life. We have a million divisions in the body. The problem is we allow the divisions to divide instead of setting the divisions aside and focusing on the mission. What is the mission? You know, they say if you're a hammer, everything in the world looks like a nail, right? If you're a member of an A-team, Special Forces A-team, every one of them has a different specialty. One guy is the weapons specialist. One guy is the medical specialist. One guy is the explosive specialist. They all have their specialty. Ask any one of them, what's the most important thing on your team? Oh, explosives, all we need is explosives. We'll blow everything up. Well, what if somebody gets hurt? Go to the medic. He says, hey, the most important thing, it's all about being the medic. It's all about keeping these guys in one piece and keeping them alive. It's natural that everybody is going to focus on their particular area. But you can't spend your time quibbling about which one of them is the most important because in reality, they're all necessary. We have to have them all. And then he says, to the, until we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to the perfect man, this is, of course, the conformity to the image and the character of Jesus Christ, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that... We should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love. To who? To you, to each other, to my neighbor, to the person on the mission field. Speaking the truth in love, when? When we have the opportunity. You know, it's amazing how many opportunities we have to share the truth, and we don't take them. We let them pass us by. And that should be a challenge to all of us. That we should be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. That is the whole world outside around you. That is your nightly news. The one thing you can almost be certain of, if you listen to the nightly news, I don't, because I know this, they're not telling you the truth. What they're doing is, what's happening over here that you ought not to see, they're going to come up with big stories, hey everybody, look over here, oh you're not going to believe what's going on here. Nobody's looking over here. Oftentimes what I do is, if I look at all, I look and I say, what is this a cover for? What is this covering up or what is this taking my eyes off of? We don't want to be children, just blown here and there. And unfortunately, our whole world, I cannot believe. Can you believe? Talk about unprecedented times. This is the first time. I want you to really take this on board. This is the first time in history that what has happened in this world has happened since the Tower of Babel. You are living in such an unprecedented time of history that there has never been a time since the Tower of Babel that the entire world united together in lockstep in doing what they were doing. Now I'll ask you a question. Was the Tower of Babel a good thing or a bad thing? Did God put an end to it? Oh yeah. And he's going to put an end to this one too. He says that the whole body is joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Every part, you're one of those parts, each and every one of you. Causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Where does the supply come from? Where does the supply come for my fingers? Comes from the hand. Where does the supply for my hand come from? Comes from the forearm. Where does the supply for the the forearm come from? Well, it comes from the upper arm. And we'll notice something very, very interesting is that in between each one of those is a joint. Now, you may have heard the joint interpreted as being the pastor. I'm going to make it a little bit more difficult. The joint is the local church. That's the intention of the passage. If I'm separated from the local church, I cannot function as a member that's not really too revolutionary, is it? It's absolutely true. You know why it frightens me? It frightens me because I believe that the coming of Christ is near. And I believe that our time is almost up. And I believe that it is possible to sit back in all the knowledge that we have gained and all the wonderful things that we've learned and let the rest of the body rot in ignorance until Christ comes. And then who will he hold to account? Those who knew the most are the most accountable. That should frighten each and every one of us. The task of taking the gospel to the world begins with faithful and effective prayer. I love 1 Timothy 2, if you'll turn back there with me. 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 1. To me, one of the most beautiful passages written by the Apostle Paul. Therefore, he says, I exhort first of all. Notice, if, if you mark your Bible, just go through and mark every time the word all occurs. I exhort first of all, that is, of all matters that I could deal with, this is at the top. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Do you pray for your politicians? Do you pray something other than Judgment on them? The ones whose evil I hate the most are the ones I pray for the most. I pray for their soul. I pray for them to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. I pray for God to somehow, in the same way that He showed grace to me, to break through the hardness of their heart and the blindness of their soul and the scar tissue that they've developed over the years and years and years of corruption and criminality and somehow break through with the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For kings and all who are in authority... Do you pray for world leaders? When you see the crazy things that are being done, the destructive things that are being done, do you pray for those leaders? Why is it important? I'll tell you why. Our prayers are on record. And one day our prayers are going to be known to all. They're going to be public. Right now they're private. One day, it's going to be known, the prayers that we prayed. Were they all for what I want, what I need, what I'd like? Or are they the kind of prayers that actually reflect the mind of Christ and the sacrifice of the Apostle Paul? Praying for those who harm us the most. And praying for their deliverance. That introduces the reason we pray that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Is that happening right now here? I can tell you it's not happening in America. In America, you can get arrested as a pastor for saying things that I say all the time. Do I expect probably somewhere along the line? Probably. And I even restrain myself. I try to be as restrained as I can, but you have to speak the truth. Pastors in Canada, pastors in America have been arrested and thrown in prison because they refuse to obey the dictates of a government over the church when the government has no authority over the church. Those men are going to be honored one day. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. I love how Paul, particularly in First and Second Timothy and Titus, will use the phrase God, our Savior, and then Jesus, our Savior, and then he will refer, refer to our God and Savior, and it's unique to the pastoral epistles. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Could I just say that if you don't have a passion in your soul for the salvation of those who are doing the most damage, you're missing the mind of Christ. You're missing the mind of Christ. Because it tells us right here what is the driving passion of his soul. We could look at 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, where the work of the church's mission demands Multiplication. And Paul tells Timothy to teach other men who will be faithful to teach others. And that whole multiplication process goes on and on and on. We could look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, where the Thessalonian church was such a model church because they became followers of Paul. They became imitators. With the result, they became examples. With the result, Paul says, the trumpet sound of the gospel went forth everywhere so that I have no need to come because the people hear the message through you. What gratification, what satisfaction must the Apostle Paul have felt that the Lord led him to that little group in Thessalonica and the impact that they had? The two greatest churches that he founded and that ended up doing more to support him and work with him was the Philippian church and the Thessalonian church. would that we could be that kind of a church. But before we run out of time, I want to go to Hebrews chapter 10. Because in Hebrews chapter 10, we see a church that is grounded in doctrine and effective in ministry. And remember that the theme... The problem that's being addressed all the way through the book of Hebrews is the defection of believers. Starting all the way at the beginning in chapter 3, he warns them, and I would throw this out to you, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You'll notice he says, if you hear his voice. It's not the same thing to hear someone giving the message And hear his voice. What makes a difference between someone who hears the message and someone who hears his voice? A soul that is prepared to take the Word from God. Set the middleman aside, set the communicator aside, all he is is a mouthpiece, this is the Word of God. If you will hear his voice, Now, once we've even equipped ourselves, prepared ourselves to hear his voice, then comes the next test. Do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart as they did in the wilderness. Why? Because it didn't work out for them. And there comes a point where God will no longer deal with us. He will leave us in our insensitive, hardened, secluded condition. You know, Jesus asked a question when he was on the earth. When the Son of Man returns, did he say, when the Son of Man returns, will he find churches? No. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? You say, oh, yeah, he's going to find faith. They're going to be believers. That's not his point. What was Jesus' definition of faith? That's a question to ask in regard to that passage. When the Son of Man returns, will I find faith as I define it? Not just believers, not just people who had faith somewhere along the line. Will I find faith among my people as I define it? And we're looking at passages, my friends, that define it, and it makes it very, very clear. If we're one of those who chose to sit on the sidelines, fail to fulfill our spiritual gift, not integrate into the body somewhere. People tell me all the time, I can't find a church that teaches the word. Then invite people to your house and start teaching the word. If you're not doing that, what's your solution? Invite your neighbor, invite your friends, invite your family, bring them together in your house. You say, "But I'm not a pastor." A lot of guys that are in the pulpit aren't either. <laughs> Teach the word. Teach the word. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author Brings us into the fourth major warning section of the book. We're not going to deal a lot with that. Uh, I'll just touch on the fact that the good news is, verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. I want you to notice two objectives. The ultimate and the immediate. The ultimate objective. Those people have been sanctified forever or purified perfected forever. The imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ to the soul of the person who believed. That is step number one, and that's the ultimate objective. And then comes the immediate objective, those who are being sanctified. All right, what does the word sanctified mean? Well, sanctified means me learning more doctrine, right? Well, that's part of it. That's part of it, but is it all of it? I don't think so. Being sanctified, what's the purpose of being sanctified? You remember Paul tells a little story or gives us a little analogy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and he says, you know what, in a great house like God has, God has a great house. His household is a great household. In a great house, there are different kinds of vessels. And some vessels are for honor and some vessels are for dishonor. And he doesn't go into detail and we don't have to be too explicit about the fact that in those days they didn't have toilets and therefore they had the bedpan or whatever you want to call it. And those were for dishonor. And then there were those that were for honor and that's when your honored guests show up and you bring out your great grandmother's china right? That's a vessel for honor. And so we stand before that passage and we ask ourselves, what kind of a vessel am I? And one of the most wonderful things, my friends, because one of the greatest things that happens when the word's being taught is conviction. There needs to be conviction. And when God speaks to us and says, I'm not pleased with this. You remember the letters to the seven churches? How it starts off to the church of Ephesus? Remember the church that Paul said there are going to be vicious wolves that are going to come in and lead many people astray and things are going to happen? And so here... How many years later? 50, 60 years later, John is able to write to them, speaking for Christ and say, I know your works. I know your labor. I know your faithfulness. I know your endurance. I know the things that you are doing. Man, what a wonderful report for a local church until that word hits. But I have a few things against you. I have a few things against you. Now, think about this. A church that fought for the truth. Remember it said that they rejected those who claimed to be apostles? They cast them out of the church. They were doing ministry, mission, outreach, sound doctrinal teaching. They had it all, almost. I have this against you. You're doing everything right, but you're lacking in the motive. And I have to tell you, this is of the messages to the seven churches, this is the one that probably haunts me more than any. Have I left my first love? Is my love for Christ as fresh and as pure and just embracing? Good to see you, Matt. Keep up the good work. And I think it's very easy for us to get caught up in the ministry and lose that motive. And I pray to God that if that's the case, convict me, correct me, get me back on track. Well, time's fleeting. So... Verse 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us after he has said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more what a marvelous possession we have in the new covenant. Where there is remission of these things, there is no longer an offering for sin. That's what the rent veil Taught us. And then we have therefore. Verse 19. We now know why the therefore is therefore. It's therefore because of what Christ has done for us. Therefore, brethren, have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we have. We have boldness to enter the holy of holies. By a new and living way that he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. It's not... A dead sacrifice. Paul doesn't say, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present yourself a dead sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice that we offer to the Lord. Verse 21, having a high priest over the house of God. What is the purpose of the high priest? The purpose of the high priest is to be a mediator between God and men, to make intercession on our behalf, and to show us how to live to show us how to live. Can you imagine that you're assembling together with a group of believers that may absolutely rub you the wrong way, can't even come close to what it was like for Christ to spend three years with the disciples? He had every reason to just, you know, not once, over and over and over again, blockheaded, stumbling, staggering, forgetful. And he loved him, and he instructed him, and he rebuked him, and he corrected him, and he just kept leading him on. Who am I being an instrument of Christ to in my life today? That's a question we should ask. I hope you can answer it. Starting in verse 22, we have three exhortations. In verse 22, let us draw near. In verse 23, let us hold fast. In verse 24, let us consider. And these three areas hit the three areas of ministry. Drawing near has to do with our priestly offering of prayer. Holding fast, our confession of faith has to do with our ambassadorship to the world. That is our witness. And then the third in verse 24, let us consider one another. Here's another one, another command. What he's actually doing is he's building three levels of spiritual experience. The highest being the one that comes to us in verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good deeds. Now, some of you are going to love this because the word stir up is the word that translates in the English language paroxysm. You ever had a paroxysm? A paroxysm is like a fit. Uh, The word is actually a word that refers to friction. Paul, for example, speaks in the book of Romans about provoking Israel through the church. Provocation. You might enjoy that. you like to provoke. But it's provoking to love and good deeds. If you are the best educated, spiritually speaking the most doctrinally instructed, you have a far greater responsibility to be a provocation to those around you. Not in a provoking way. In a gracious, in a kind, in a patient way to be nurturing them on a few more steps down the path. Now, I'm going to say this Not just because of those of you who are here, but there are going to be people all around America and the world that are going to be hearing this. And it's important for us to understand this. The greater our insight, understanding, instruction, education, the greater our responsibility to be that provoking influence in the life of someone else. I said a while ago, I believe Christ is coming soon. I think most of you would agree or at the very least be fervently hoping for that. I fear that some of the best are going to stand before him and they're going to be told to go to the back of the line. You know why they're going to be asked? You had it all. You understood dispensations. You understood the plan of God in its vast scope. You understood the principles of salvation. You understood the issues of spiritual growth. You understood the mechanics of spiritual maturity. Where is my payback? Where's my payback? You remember the talents? What have you done for me? Where's my return on my investment? Well, I'm sorry, Lord, I don't have one. He who is first will be last. In your notes <clears throat> under this section, you'll notice that there are five critical doctrines that the people are given access to the throne of God, the all sufficiency of the blood of Christ, the doctrine of dispensations, the new covenant the removal of the barrier of sin, penalty, and death, the high priesthood and mediatorship of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I would suggest probably all of you have those. That's not anything new to you. But those five things are to lead into the areas of ministry. Christ created the church to be a community of light and a witness to a lost and dying world, and that requires a dynamic spiritual life of interaction among believers. Unfortunately, there are five things that are really lacking in our church today, and you've got those in your notes under the summary. We lack the focus on Jesus Christ in his person and his work. By the way, I would suggest to you from Greg Kukl, if you've never seen any of his books, uh, I would encourage you to start with the book, Reality. Gregory Kukl, K-O-U-K-L. Gregory Kukl, The book is Reality. When I first saw the book, I thought he was being a little bit arrogant. It says how the world started, how it ends, and everything important in between. And I thought nobody could cover all that. But he did. He says there are four books that we need to really understand. If we really want to zero in on the plan of God, we need to understand four books. Number one, Genesis. It tells us how it began and how it went wrong. Number two, John. It tells us what God chose to do about everything going wrong. Number three, Romans, because it gives us the big picture from beginning to end. And then finally, the book of Revelation. I'd encourage you to consider that book. It's extremely worthwhile. That's the focus. We lack focus. We lack depth. Depth, of course, has to do with doctrine related to his redemptive work. And how it relates to you and me. Conviction. We don't get confronted enough. You remember in the old days, hellfire and brimstone? I couldn't go to church without feeling convicted. Of course, I was being told every single time, you're not really a Christian if you think this, which I thought. You're not really a Christian if you say this, which I said. You're not really a Christian if you do this, which I did. I couldn't figure out if I was coming or going. We don't need to question our salvation. John MacArthur, a great teacher in many ways, unfortunately off track on some very fundamental doctrines, made this statement recently to a gathering of pastors at a conference. I believe it was him, if if I'm mistaken, forgive me, but I believe he's the guy that said this. If you're not creating doubt in your church members about their salvation, you're not doing your job. If you're not creating doubt in their minds whether they're really saved, you're not doing your job. There's something seriously wrong with that mindset. But what we should be doing is bringing conviction. Am I really measuring up to what God has called me to measure up to? And conviction should lead to direction meaning... I'm convicted that maybe I'm not doing everything I ought to be doing, which way do I go? And then finally, scope. How does my life relate to the lives of others and to the whole world mission? And that brings us right back where we started, Acts 1-8, Matthew 28. We have a mission to reach the world. The church was designed by Christ to be a witness. We're all to play a part in that. Next section. He designed us to be warriors. We're gonna look at that in the next section. I'm about five minutes over, so pardon me, we'll come back together, I think, 11.30. I do wanna thank all of you again for coming, and I wanna thank uh, Helen and Phil, and I know uh, Jeff and Sabina, and probably, I always hate naming people because you can't name everybody, you know, but for those that have played a part just putting everything together, and look, we've got stuff to eat and drink, and we're comfortable, and it's a wonderful facility. We're thankful to the pastor of the church and the church body for allowing us to use this beautiful facility. Um, it's, It's, again, part of the body function. Just ask yourself this question. If they weren't willing to let us do this, where would we be? Again, it's part of the team. So let's pray, take a break. We'll see you back at 1130. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for truth that lifts and strengthens and encourages and sometimes convicts us and gives us a good hard kick in the backside because we need to be corrected. Thank you for love that does this. May God the Holy Spirit help us to implement the things that we've studied in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.